Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston, and former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced his opposition to the For the People Act, the big voting rights bill that passed in the House, and that would seem to all but kill the prospects for the bill that some people, including some people on this panel, have called the most important bill in Congress. Why is this bill failing if Democrats feel so strongly about it, and where is the issue going next, Congressman Hodes? Well, it's an issue I feel very strongly about. It's an issue that a lot of Democrats feel strongly about. It's an issue that everybody in the country ought to feel strongly about, given the concerted effort by the right-wing cabal that calls itself the Republican Party in state after state to con- to to enhance voter suppression. It's an absolute cavalcade of Republican hits against democracy. Uh, The January 6th insurrection lives on in the hearts and minds of the Republicans who in state after state are restricting voting. It makes the For the People Act even more important, especially with regard to its, um, its voting parameters. Um, I care really deeply about it because I think our democracy is at stake. I, I, I think we're at an inflection point in the history of this country that uh, Trump was a symptom of a deep, dark strain in American life and politics, uh, which is now he, he gave full-throated uh, permission for It has had disastrous consequences. We saw the commission for January 6th go down. Uh, I will will say that there's now a new Senate report on some of the intelligence failures about January 6th. But the larger point is democracy is really in the balance at this point in American history. Uh, I I don't think we've we've ever had such an attempt at authoritarian rule by a president before. uh, And we've never um, quite come come to the place where uh, voter suppression is uh, is being advanced as a platform for a party. Um, Not Democrats, it's Republicans. So is, is, is the bill important? I think it's really important. Now, Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin has never decided, he's never said he wanted to switch parties, but he's a very frustrating example of what it means to have a big tent in a party. He's very frustrating to me. I am frustrated. If you can't tell, I'm frustrated. Um, Manchin often votes with Republicans and his stated rationale for opposition to the bill are is just beyond me he he says it's 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 not it's not nonpartisan enough it's too partisan well folks let's let's remember we've just been through the january 6th insurrection let's remember that it's republican legislatures and governors all over the country who are trying to 
to suppress the vote because they don't want black people to vote. They want to make it harder to vote. And we've got to do something. We've got to. Am I frustrated? Yes, I'm really frustrated. I don't know what to say about Joe Manchin. He comes from one of the reddest states in the country, and he's a Democrat. So I guess that's good sometimes. But his opposition both to this bill and to reforming the filibuster uh, could be, they, they, it could be of historic dimensions. It could go down um, as we look back on this and the attempts to suppress the vote as one of the most disastrous senatorial blocking of, of progress in the history of the country. It's, it, it is of monumental proportions. And he has an outside, he's of outside, impor, outsized importance. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm not only frustrated, but I'm really frustrated. And I think a lot of Democrats feel that way. And, you know, I don't know, maybe Schumer is doing something behind the scenes to try to move him to try to twist his arms. Maybe, um, you know, maybe his colleagues are, are getting together to buy him hush puppies. I don't know. That's my dog in the background. The what were you saying about too. hush puppy? That's, a, that's how I said hush, hush puppy. Hush that's puppy. How he he <laughs> feel that's how he feels about Joe Manchin. But so I don't I don't know what to say about Joe Manchin. I mean, somebody. I, I just I'm frustrated. You're frustrated, Paul. I could tell. And well, Alicia Preston, your thoughts on the likely demise of the uh, For the People Act. Yay. <laughs> That's my initial response. Look, a couple of things Paul said. You know, this whole Republicans are racist, they don't want black people to vote thing is so ridiculous. I mean, look at the Georgia law. The Georgia law expanded, doubled the number of weekends you can have what they colloquially call uh souls to the polls that's the weekend voting they do traditionally black churches um they did say you can't give food or water which is the same and i believe 28 other states you know it's so preposterous to say that these are oppression bills the texas bill people are up in arms because you can't vote 24 hours they did it once once in 2020 they didn't like it they're changing it back not exactly the end of the world no one talked about it before 2020 and no one you know will talk about it another year or two it's just over it's just ridiculous claims and, and again the whole oh republicans are racist they don't want black people to vote is is just so unnecessarily incendiary and untrue and now do republicans want more republicans and democrats to vote of course they do do democrats want more democrats and republicans to vote of course they do H.R. 1, the quote unquote for the People Act, uh, is a federalization of our election system in this country, something that has never been done, never should be done. I have full faith in Bill Gardner, the New Hampshire Secretary of State, to run our elections and our legislature to make the laws that apply to them. Um, this you can't, you know, oh, they're making someone show an ID. That's racist. I don't know how that's racist. Look, I had to show an ID to get a vaccine, and that is quite literally a life or death matter. And I still had to show my license or a form of ID. And yet to vote, it's racist to have to show an ID because what, what what are we saying? Minorities don't have licenses. Minorities don't have non-driving license, uh, you know, IDs. The whole thing is so politically just divisive. And that was its attempt. And yay, Joe Manchin, for standing up for what you believe in and not your party. 
and look, Republicans do it too. Republicans just are, what's my party doing? That's what I'll do. I oppose that. I oppose it when Democrats do it. I think he's bold, he's courageous, and it is the right thing to do because there are a million things in HR1 that are a disaster for our democracy. And I hope that it dies a very quick and painless death. Matt Robeson, your thoughts on the For the People Act? I will tell you exactly how voter ID is racist. In 2013, North Carolina passed a voter ID law that a federal court overturned because they found that it was so blatant an attempt to restrict voting access for black Americans that it had with, and this is quoting from the ruling, with almost surgical precision targeted black voters. In Alabama, their version of voter ID allows you to use a driver's license for voter ID. It does not allow you to use government issued photo public housing ID, which black voters disproportionately have. Hmm, why on earth could that be? Now look, I agree with Alicia that you're not following the best strategy to start any conversation with, you're a racist. That is a great way to turn people off. I would never call any Republican in my life a racist, unless I was darn sure that they were a racist and then they probably would not be in my life. Nor am I calling Republicans in general racists. I don't believe that they are. I do believe that our political system incentivizes Republicans to not want black voters who overwhelmingly vote for Democrats to vote in the same numbers as white voters. That is a political incentive that the Republican Party has. That is a problem. When a party is incentivized to not have turnout from a racial group, that is a problem. Just remember that since 1982, up until the most recent election, the Republican Party was under a consent decree, a court order to not engage in the kinds of voter intimidation tactics that they used to undertake at polling stations. You can Google this and look it up. Am I calling individual Republicans racists? No. What I'm saying is that there was an incentive and it still remains for one political party to have a turnout difference between racial groups. That is a problem. So to Ken's question, I think what Democrats should do now is focus on the Voting Rights Act, renewing the Voting Rights Act as a separate piece of legislation. It provides federal oversight, which by the way, we've had federal oversight of elections since the dawn of the Republic. It's in the constitution that Congress oversees the manner and timing of federal elections. Congress gets to set the rules for federal elections. There's, this is no new thing. And they've had to do so for states that have had a historical pattern of trying to keep black voters away from the polls. There is every reason to renew the Voting Rights Act. That's where Democrats should go first. They should remove the temptation and the incentive to create laws that disproportionately impact black voters. Why is it at least uh, perceived to be more difficult for minorities to get an ID than it is for other people in, in uh, this country. They're poor. They may not have cars. Public transportation is bad. And, uh, you, you know, you can, start, you can start there with simply access to, to 
getting to getting a, a license or that kind of ID. Uh, they may not be able because of the disproportionate income gaps. They can't afford cars. Uh, so you've got you've got that. Um, there are co large concentrations of minority populations in urban areas where you may not even need ever to have a car uh, because you're 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 living in a city. And if you look at voter concentration uh, uh, of minority groups, that is certainly true around uh, the country. Um, and in some states, there very well may be uh, other impediments, uh, which Matt who always has the kinds of st statistics uh, that he used to feed to me on a regular basis has about, about the uh, uh, actual uh, government, governmental interference and obstacles that are put in, in place to block minorities from getting government IDs. You but know, you could also say the same thing about a lot of white people as well. You that can, is and true. That's, that's of course, not that's, that's true too. But that's also why it's not racist. Look, Matt brought up, I think you said Alabama had a law that it had to be a driver's license and that this other government issued ID for housing doesn't qualify. That's wrong. I'm with you. But states like New Hampshire, most other states that require ID, it doesn't have to be a driver's license, nor should it. It's not just minorities who may not drive. There are a lot of people who are 18 years old that may not drive. Um, there are seniors who don't drive and still can vote. You can get a non driver's license, government issued identification that is accepted here in New Hampshire. And most states allow that. And most states, if you literally don't have the whatever the fee is, $35, $40 to get that, it can be waived. I believe it's called like an indigenous, I'm not gonna remember the word, but for those who don't have the funds to do it. We have a responsibility as Americans to do our part too. I don't know why doing our part as in getting a license, not a license, an identification isn't just the minimal we need to do in order to vote. And that's not because we want to oppress minorities. It probably is because we don't want people to vote who shouldn't be voting. So, Alicia, let me let me ask you a question. Why? Why? You tell me why more than 250 bills to curb or complicate access to polls have been introduced in 45 state legislatures, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. You tell me why the Republican legislatures and governors have want to make it harder for Americans to vote. Tell me why. I'm not, I will tell I'm you. Not, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not calling anybody racist, but you tell me why, why that's happened. Well, because those aren't Democratic governors and Democratic legislatures who are introducing those bills. It's Republicans who want to make it harder to vote. Why? I disagree with the premise completely. I don't think the voting law in Georgia is to oppress a vote or suppress a vote. I don't think the voting laws in Texas are to oppress or suppress a vote. I think it's to protect the system. So I disagree with the entire what's, premise. Wait, wait a second. What's hindered from what's what? Wait a second. What's what 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 faults in the system to protect what system? The fact the fact that in the last election with mail-in voting, it was made easier to vote in places. The fact that Trump lost. The fact that Biden won. I mean, why in the face of the fact that Republicans did so well down the ballot? Why are they now taking steps in forty-five different states to make it hard? harder to vote. Tell me why. You can Be talk about one state and one provision, but you cannot argue with the fact that it's been made harder to vote in 45 different states by Republicans. Tell me why. 
I'm telling you, I disagree with the premise of your question. I don't believe that that is what's happening. You guys are saying there wasn't any fraud. I don't believe there was widespread fraud. I don't believe Trump is the supposed winner of last election. I think Biden won fair and square. But you guys, in response, have the sweeping federalization of the election system you want through HR1. If there's no problem, then why do that? Oh, to protect people from not being able to eat a donut in the line in Georgia or or what? Or is it because you, you don't want someone to be able to vote at 3 a.m. in Texas? Somehow that's racist. Somehow that's opp- suppressing a vote. These are the kinds of bills that you're lumping into. You, Republicans don't want people to vote. It's just not true. What, who do we want to vote? We don't want people who don't have the right to vote. That could be people from other states that go into cross crossover into states. It happens in New Hampshire two, three, four times every cycle they catch them. That's not sweeping fraud, but that is a problem for those who do it because if you're a Republican in Massachusetts or a Democrat in Massachusetts, your vote doesn't count as much. Why? Because we know how Massachusetts is going to vote. People come over the line and do it. Two people in my own hometown did it who had a summer home last time. That's who we don't want to vote. Who do we want to vote? Illegal aliens who have no right to vote in our election system. To protect the rights of the people who have the right to vote, you need to stop those who shouldn't vote from voting. Now in Alabama, if they really but, did but, a law, but, I believe them Matt. Protect from what, Alicia? Protect them from what? Because you from just having said, people cancel their vote that shouldn't which, be voting, which you just said does not happen on a widespread basis. So what I, I guess I don't understand is if you look at the list of states that have strict just just to choose voter ID laws as sort of the most well understood, the most widely discussed uh, aspect of, of restrictive voting laws, you look at the states that have strict voter ID laws. And this is defined on a bipartisan basis by, by the Council of State Legislatures. There are so, so, so look at the list. Look at the list. Georgia, Texas, Wisconsin, Arizona, Virginia. These are the places where Republicans have been pulling their hair out for the last six months to conduct audits, to conduct forensic recounts. How on earth could Donald Trump have won? These are states that, for the most part, have been under unified Republican control for the last quarter century. Look at Texas. It hasn't had a Democratic governor or a Democrat holding statewide office since 1994. They undertook an audit of the election anyway. Why? Because you have to kiss Donald Trump's you-know-what and have some kind of a messaging thing to perpetuate the big lie that somehow the election was stolen. So you have Texas where Trump won, where Republicans won up and down the ballot, and where you haven't had a Democrat having any control over any mechanism of voting in the state for the last quarter century. They conduct an audit, and what do they find? Zero fraud. They found 16 instances where someone accidentally voted in the wrong precinct. Okay, so what are you protecting people from? The problem that we have here is the spin cycle of BS that the Republican Party is putting the country through. It starts with Donald Trump and his ilk screaming, oh, the the election is illegitimate. There is voter fraud. There's millions of illegal immigrants voting. And then they show polls showing that disproportionately Republican, but voters are having questions about whether elections are legitimate. Then they point to those polls to say, the American people are losing confidence in the legitimacy and the fairness of our elections. That's why we need more restrictive voting bills. And the spin cycle continues and continues and rolls forward. So listen, the idea idea that Donald Trump is the catalyst for voting laws is factually inaccurate. Well, of course, long before Donald Trump. Yeah, he's not he's not the only reason. Look, four things happened. Number one, the pandemic hit and 
and in and states made changes to make sure that uh, people could vote uh, because of public health concerns. And so changes were made. Number two, turnout in 2020 surged either because of those changes, because it was made easier to vote or people wanted to reject Donald Trump. Uh, turnout, turnout went through the roof. Trump lost three. Trump and the big lie. He alleged voter fraud, which he still alleges, and his his sycophants and cabal continue to perpetuate the big lie, repeated allegations that the integrity of the voting system uh, is at stake. When you yourself, Alicia, said sometimes there are as many as two instances of people voting uh, that shouldn't have voted in New Hampshire. And four, Republicans retained control of state governments in the down ballot races. They're Trump allies serving Trump's will, trying to suppress the vote, to suppress turnout in the hopes that coming up in the next cycle in 2022, Republicans will regain their majorities in the House and the Senate. Simple facts. Here's the thing, though. My vote counts. And if one or two people cross the Massachusetts border to vote in my hometown, guess whose vote just got canceled out? Mine. It doesn't have to be widespread fraud to be corrected. It has to be a possibility that someone can just come into the state of New Hampshire and say, oh, I live in Hampton. Here's my address. They get to vote. My one singular vote getting canceled matters. It took away my right as an American. And so, yes, I'm all for voter ID. And no one wants to cancel your vote. I, I want to protect your vote. But what I don't want to do is pass 250 laws in state legislatures across the country that then diminish the rights of thousands and thousands of other people to vote in a snipe hunt, in, in a search for, as you said, fraud that does not exist on a widespread basis. I'll kind of close on, on this thought. In 2018, Democrats swept all statewide elections in Wisconsin. In the Democratic Assembly, their, their, their house, their version of the house, the candidates on the Democratic side got about 53% of the total votes cast. And they ended up with 36% of the chamber seats. So whose votes didn't count in that instance? Who did not get to have their democratic preference expressed in that in instance? 53% of the state voted for Democrats. They wanted a democratic majority to be their representatives in their state legislature. And they ended up with 36% of the seats. That is what H.R. 1, S. 1, the For the People Act, is trying to correct. When you tell me that the motivation here is to protect one vote, Alicia Preston's vote, I agree. Alicia is the greatest poster child for protecting a vote ever because I want to protect Alicia's vote. I definitely do not want to see it taken away. But that's not what this is about. This is about the, the motivation, the incentive. I'm not saying that people are racist. I'm not saying that they're evil. What I'm saying is that Republicans have the incentive to try to perpetuate the kinds of systems that disenfranchise the tens of thousands of people who voted in 2018 in Wisconsin for a majority Democratic legislature, and they only ended up getting 36% of the seats. And by the way, I could have picked a whole bunch of states where that's true because we see that kind of gerrymandering and rigging across the country. In recent weeks, there's been an abrupt, abrupt and significant change in the way scientists, political leaders, and the media have talked about where COVID came from, an animal or a lab. 
President Biden has now called for a new full and transparent investigation into whether the virus actually emerged from a lab in Wuhan, China. And this week, Matt and Paul scored a major interview with Donald J. McNeil Jr., who is the lead reporter on the COVID-19 pandemic for The New York Times and whose May 17th article in Medium is one of the reasons that we're all rethinking where the virus came from. Last week, uh, we talked about the question of whether this re-examination matters. So this week, let's talk about the politics and the media equation. Was the media coverage over the past year bad or biased? And what about the politics of this story, Alicia? You know, shameless plug, I wrote about this in my Seacoast Online uh, column this past Sunday, if anyone wants to check it out. But, you know, I did a quick Google in preparing for that column, and I found a 2017 article and in Nature magazine, and it was about this Wuhan facility. It was about to be named a BSL-4 facility, which basically means it can work with the most dangerous pathogens in the entire world. And here's a quote from the article. Some scientists outside China worry about pathogens escaping. Now, that took me a Google search that I think every other journalist and every journalist in this country should have probably done before poo-pooing what was uh, presumed as a conspiracy theory that this may have leaked from the lab in Wuhan, because in 2017, scientists outside of China probably should have been listened to because it at least is plausible. Uh, kudos to Joe Biden for opening this investigation 90 days. I don't think we're going to find anything out. China's not going to cooperate. They're China. Why would they? They don't want to be blamed. They don't want to be held responsible. Um, they want it to be an accidental natural occurrence. I don't know where it came from, but I know it shouldn't have been dismissed. Um, you know, Jonathan Carl was on one of the Sunday shows last week, and he noted that, uh, you know, quote, some things may be true, even if Donald Trump said them. That's what happened here. The media, Donald Trump said it, Senator Tom Cotton said, you know, we should look at this virus escape from a lab because it was Donald Trump and his ally, Tom Cotton, the media ignored, mocked. So did the people and shame on them. It's not their job to decide whether something is uh, viable or not based on the source. It's their job to investigate it. That doesn't mean you have to believe it. That doesn't mean you go, well, Donald Trump says that it may have come from a Wuhan lab. Let's report it came from the Wuhan lab. That means you investigate. That means it's your job as the media who purport yourself to be so vital to our democracy, which by the way, I agree with, so vital to be the third party, the fourth estate, to look at our government, to hold their feet to the fire, to ask questions and to do it globally. If you're as important as you claim to be, then do that. You should have asked questions then. You should have raised it then. The government should have been pushed to investigate it. The global world, the world, the journalists of the world should have all been pushing to find out where this came from. Why would it make any difference? I don't know. We probably still would have been stuck in a global pandemic, but we could hold China's feet to the fire. We could make sure it doesn't happen again. We can, I forget who approves the, you know, BSL-4 facility status. It can be pulled so that they can't dance with any more dangerous, deadly pathogens again. They've got Ebola in there. I mean, but the media failed. And they failed to do their most basic job, which was to authenticate information, investigate it on behalf of the people they allege to serve. And that is if they are as significant to our democracy as they claim to be. And I think they should be. Paul Hodes. Mm. Once upon a time in a forest far, far away, there was a wolf and there was a little girl in a cabin in the woods and she thought she heard something scrabbling at the window and she began to cry, wolf, wolf, wolf. But 
It was not a wolf. It was just a little bird. And the next day, something else scrambled, and she cried, wolf, wolf, wolf. And it was a squirrel uh, scrambling. And, and finally, a week went by, and she kept crying, wolf, 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 every time she heard something. And finally, the wolf came and ate her. So I, 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 I confess, mea culpa, the fact that Tom Cotton and Donald J. Trump called the COVID-19 by funny racist names. They must have gotten a real kick out of it. Uh, that uh, Donald J. Trump diminished the importance. Oh, it's just like the flu. It'll be gone by April. Uh, that Donald J. Trump surmised that maybe it emerged from a lab uh, that wasn't as well protected as it should be. And because the Chinese authorities who are paranoid to the nth degree about anything did nothing to diminish uh, that speculation. I, like many others, and I'm not a scientist, dismissed uh, the possibility that it came from some kind of leak or escape or origin in a lab. The fact is, um, and I'm certainly not uh, adept at the at the science of the gene splitting and the investigations that go on in biological laboratories as Donald J. McNeil, the science writer for the Times whom we interviewed is, um, and I commend everybody to listen to that interview that uh, Matt and I did with Donald J. McNeil because this guy is, he's the real deal. He is a science-minded, science-adept journalist who is a, was a long time, was a long time writer at the New York Times, uh, delving into the subject. Um, the bottom line, I think, and Matt, Matt may disagree with him, is the bottom line is that, that we don't know, finally, in the end, at this point, we are not completely 100% sure about where and how this virus emerged. Uh, there is a possibility that it was somehow connected to uh, the laboratory. And there's a, a pretty complex path to try to figure this out. Was it, was it workers from the lab who were collecting specimens from bats who somehow got infected and brought it back to the lab and then went out in public. Uh, and uh, that's how it started. Uh, did it start at the markets in China where people apparently uh, uh, roast bats for, for dinner? I mean, you know, things, things are different there. And we have a paranoid Chinese government, which is very secretive. Um, it's it's important to understand um, the COVID-19 pandemic is among the deadliest infectious diseases that has emerged in recent history. Um, the specific mechanisms are just not known. The, um, the official position or a position at the National Library of Medicine, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, is that there is a large body, and I quote, of virological, epidemiologic, veterinarian, ecologic data establishing that the new virus, SARS-CoV-2, evolved directly from another coronavirus that naturally infects bats 
and pangolins in Asia and Southeast Asia. And scientists have warned for decades that these kinds of sarbicoviruses are poised to emerge again and again. They've identified and argued for enhanced prevention and control efforts. And unfortunately, very few such preventive actions have been taken, resulting in the latest coronavirus emergence. So the risk of similar coronavirus outbreaks in the future is high. Um, And it's going to take scientific, public health, societal, governmental action to figure out exactly what happened. It would be best at this point, frankly, if that kind of investigation could be done jointly, could be done cooperatively by governments and scientists, could be done transparently, although When you're dealing with the Chinese government, that is really a pretty fond uh, and useless wish because the Chinese are paranoid. And in fact, if something was to be discovered that the Chinese government didn't like, they see themselves at risk because they see themselves at risk everywhere. So, So does there need to be an investigation? Yes. We have to figure out whatever we can to prevent future viruses like this and future pandemics like this. I don't think you're going to get the Chinese to forbid or prohibit people from bringing bats to the markets. I just, that's just, I don't know if that's going to happen. And apparently that's, that's where these kinds of viruses um, begin in one way or another. Did it happen? Were there was there something that happened wrong at a lab in Wuhan? It's possible. Could have been a lab somewhere else. Um, At this point, uh, the media, I suppose, could be faulted for not looking at every possibility and starting an earlier investigation about all this. Um, But it's hard to take. It was it was very hard to take, I think, um, Donald Trump's suggestion seriously, um, not because of necessarily conspiracy theories, but it came from the same guy who said, uh, inject bleach into your veins, um, came from the same guy who said, let's try hydroxychloroquine or whatever, whatever, whatever I've now mangled. I mean. So it it was hard to take it was hard to take that seriously, uh, but clearly while there is a slim possibility apparently that it originated in a lab, it ought to be it ought we ought to find out. Matt Robeson, two points, and I do hope people will listen to the episode with Donald McNeil. He was on the front lines of this. He was the lead COVID reporter for the New York Times. Point number one, uh, Alicia and, and Paul, when we refer to the media here, let's be crystal clear about who we're talking about, because there were plenty of media outlets who were pushing the idea that the virus could have originated in a lab leak. That continued all through 2020. What you're really talking about is, well, we don't like the way the New York Times covered it. We don't like the way CNN. What I think Alicia is referring to is we don't like the way the media, who they perceive as being more liberal, covered it, and that they said that this was not a real possibility. There was plenty of media coverage about the possibility, which is still unproven, that it could have come from a lab. 
Number two, there was tons of investigation. One of the things that Donald McNeil laid out is the process inside the room, inside the New York Times. He actually prepared a long, in-depth 4,000-word story about all of the investigation, all of the science underlying why scientists thought that it was extremely unlikely to have come from a lab and very likely had come from an animal. That story was killed by the editors. This isn't a case of the New York Times pushing the idea of it had to be from an animal. They were kind of doing the opposite. They were relying on what science had available at the time. And so you had a situation where there was a ton of available scientific evidence supporting one possibility and zero evidence supporting the lab leak possibility. What happened after that? Science evolved. What we knew evolved. New facts came to light. That's what happens in the world. Sometimes new facts come to light. We learn more things and then we change the way we think about things. But at the time to have Tom Cotton basing these allegations, oh, it maybe it came, maybe it was a bioweapon. Maybe it came from a lab in China based on total vapor. There was no reason to report that. There was no evidence for that. He was asserting it for blatantly obvious political purposes. It turned out when, we, when more facts emerged, yeah, it was more of a possibility than we thought at the time. That doesn't represent a failing on the part of the media. If there was one failing, one concession I would make, any media story, and I haven't looked at every story that's been published since 2020, any media story that said that this was a conspiracy theory that had been debunked was going too far. But if they said that it was an unsubstantiated rumor based in no credible evidence, that was accurate. So where does, but wait a second, where does that leave us now? If, if, if scientists don't know, um, and this became a political football, and now we're uh, actually thinking about the science again, and, and, and we don't know, what does that tell us about where we are, for example, with masks and mask mandates? Because here we are, COVID is still around. I mean, it's going nuts with variants around the globe. Um, the UK just just made sure that no, nobody can, you know, they, I think I, the most recent thing, I think they shut down flights from Portugal um, in Asia in South America, Central America, uh, variants are emerging. According to um, uh, 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 the, uh, according to the, our interview, there are variants that have emerged out of New York and Los Angeles. So we've got ver COVID variants in this country. People are still dying. There are still people being hospitalized, and yet. We're we're eliminating mask mandates everywhere. People are treating as treating this as if it's time to return to normal. Some scientists are sounding the alarm bells, um, but 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 how, how does this jibe with 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 what the science tells us and what we know and what we don't know? Is are we crazy to be to be eliminating these mask mandates because? If we asked a scientist, he'd say, I don't know. He'd say, I don't know. Ma masks seem to work. You probably, I mean, how, how do we, how do there's we, there's a difference. How, how do you follow the science when the science is so unsure? No, you see, there's a difference between I don't know and I'm not sure. Right. And that was one of the things that Donald McNeil pointed out. Science deals with 
probability, with likelihood, right? Our political discourse deals with certainty. It deals with assertion. It deals with confidence. The way you make a political argument is to say something strongly and assert it strongly. I can tell you today that with 100% certainty that the governor of New Hampshire has a secret store of green cheese that he is using to fight the coronavirus. If I assert it with confidence and I do it enough times, you're going to start to wonder what's going on with the governor's secret store of green cheese. I mean, that that is the basic problem. It's, it's, it's not right to say that scientists don't know. That is the nature of science. They have a certain degree of confidence a certain degree of likelihood of being able to say, you know, look, what the CDC said, based on everything we know now, now that we've been able to do in-depth studies about this, we think that it is safe in the following circumstances to not wear masks. To me, that makes a lot of sense. Whether the public can handle that, you know, that that level of nuance, I don't know. You know, just today I posted on um, a thread that was discussing the Portsmouth, New Hampshire lifting the mask mandate. And uh, I explained, I still wear a mask and I explained why. And someone replied to me that, and this goes to your assertion, uh, science has shown masks don't do anything. And, and people say it and people believe it. You know, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'd like to say it because I think it's important. People are making fun of those of us who wear masks. I wear a mask because it makes me feel more comfortable. Guess who it doesn't affect? Literally anybody else. I don't tell other people to wear masks. I don't mock them or yell at them if they're not. I am comfortable at the time wearing a mask. I didn't get my annual flu last year. It was really nice. When I'm in the grocery store where people are up and down the aisles, I do miss the one-way aisles just for traffic jam purposes, though. Um, I'm wearing my mask, and some other people are, some aren't. What I don't get is people shaming people into wearing masks, mocking them. Now, look, I got pretty thick skin. I get on here and duke it out with you guys. I can handle it if someone wants to mock me online for wearing a mask. That's because you're always winning. That's true, but... <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people can't and it's not nice and it's not kind and they do it on social media. They do it in a grocery store. I once had someone literally say to me, oh, take that mask off and wave his hand like this, like, oh, you silly girl. I didn't and I don't care, but we need to stop being rude to other people. If someone wants to wear a mask, maybe he or she can't get the vaccine. Maybe he or she has a compromised immune system because they're taking chemotherapy. It doesn't matter. Maybe like me, I just have a lot of masks. I bought to go with other outfits and they match lovely. And I want to continue having my fashion <laughs> statement. It doesn't matter why I wear a mask. Leave people alone. And what really bothers me is they these are the same people that are doing it based on my individual liberty not to wear a mask. Right. That's what they said the whole time. And now they're taking away and shaming people away from their individual liberty to wear a mask. So stop being jerk. You find that the mask mandate in New Hampshire, though, is somewhat subjective. I mean, you don't know what to expect from place to place when you go into a restaurant or a store or private any business. kind of public gathering. I'm all for private business choosing to do whatever they want to do with their private business. And if individuals want to be a customer at said place with whatever restrictions or non-restrictions they have, that's their right to go there or not. As long as you can wear your, your mask. Uh, as long as I get to wear my mask. That's it. <laughs> and that's all, all that should matter. In the final minute that we have, there's been some rumblings about fire Fauci, but he has been uh, backed solidly by the administration. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of hooey. Um, it's based on a selective reading of the emails that were brought out uh, through a Freedom of Information Act request early on. 
there were there were emails where he said, ah, masks don't seem to work based on the evidence we have. It connects exactly to what we were just talking about. Later on, the person he was corresponding with, the scientist he was corresponding with, said, no, we've we've looked carefully at this and we actually have some updated guidance. I, there's nothing in here that tells us anything we didn't know about. This is how science works. We learn new facts. We learn new things and we need to update our thinking about them. We don't still think the things we thought in the Middle Ages about bleeding people and applying leeches. And we should still think the same things we thought last year on the basis of less science. And I'll just point out that Matt Robeson has now coined a new scientific term and has spoken in the strongest language I've ever heard him speak. He's coined the term hooey. <laughs> and that'll do it on that hooey thought. That'll do it for Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hose, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time 